1: Hi, guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, feeling rejuvenated and refreshed after I just came back from a little visit with my family up in New York. I've talked about going up there a few times um, on the show, but yeah, so we, my family and I went up there just for a few days, not a full week, but um, yeah, it was really nice, I was very happy to get back to Florida, though, because if you are from that area, then you know on Friday, I guess this will be last week when you're hearing this, they got a really crazy snowstorm. So we left on Thursday afternoon, but that was all they were talking about on the news. And even on my phone, it was saying like severe winter uh, weather (gasps) advisory. So yeah, I haven't talked to my mom to find out how much snow they actually got, but they were predicting like a foot of snow in just a few hours on Friday morning. So we got out of there just in time. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I was going to say, thank goodness. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine that? Oh. I, yeah. Yeah, cuz when you're ready to leave on a trip, the last thing you want is to be like, actually, now you're snowed in. Like you're just right. reached the limit, you enjoyed your vacation, but that's all you can take. And right. then adding another day is like, oh, no. Mm-mm, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, wow, that would be yeah. <laughs> And you came back to Florida where we've been in the 80s uh all week.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I came back to definitely an extreme Change in weather from what I was up there with. It was like ten degrees when we woke up on Thursday morning, and then we came back here, and immediately it was eighty and humid. And I was like, Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We're definitely back in Florida.
0: <laughs> yeah, we are. We are late spring, uh, early summer already. Like I'm like, we don't have any more cool days. I don't think we will. I think we're. I think we're kind of done.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're past that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so we will get into the
1: episode this week. It's actually kind of interesting that the. Story takes place in New York since I was just there and uh, was actually working on this episode from New York, so I thought that was kind of cool. So despite all of the information that we have regarding what is and isn't healthy when it comes to our food, fad diets have been popping up for a really, really long time. The science behind nutrition isn't really that complicated. Foods are made up of a combination of macronutrients, which is your protein, your carbs, and your fats, and they should be consumed in appropriate ratios for your personal health desires, but for some reason, overcomplicated fads and gimmicks can kind of muddy the waters when somebody's trying to learn more about using nutrition to attain or maintain a healthy state of being. I don't really think anybody would argue with me that things like the drinking man's diet of the 1960s, yes, this was a real thing. Um, <laughs> but it was pretty ridiculous. So this diet allowed for you to drink as much alcohol as you wanted, but you had to eat foods that were considered quote, manly, such as steak and pheasant. So all the alcohol you want, just eat a lot of meat. Sounds not healthy. I think the plan is just to kill you. I don't think (laughs) it's to do anything else. What's the goal with this? So in more modern times, we've also seen tons of different fad diets that promise quick results. You've got the South Beach diet and the Atkins diet, and then there's keto and paleo and the zone diet and juice cleanses. You really can find a diet that appeals to just about anybody and promises to help anybody pretty much with any concern they have. In the mid to late 1970s, a successful cardiologist in Scarsdale, New York, put his hat in the ring with a highly controversial diet plan that he designed for his cardiology patients who needed to lose some weight to improve their heart health. The creation of this diet plan led to big success for Dr. Tarnauer, but with big success comes bigger risks. The story this week is truly a testament to what the Notorious B.I.G. meant when he said, mo' money, mo' problems.
0: I love a Notorious B.I.G. reference in the first <laughs> two minutes of the show. And that's really, it doesn't have anything to do with the show, but there you go. No, no, no. <laughs> so when Herman Harnauer was born in 1910, his parents, Harry and Dora, who were middle-class Jewish immigrants, had no idea that their son would one day grow up to be famous Herman was one of four children born to his parents, and he was raised in New York with his three sisters. Herman's father worked as a hat manufacturer, and it's not really clear whether or not his mom worked outside the home. We don't have a lot of information about what Herman's childhood was like, which is often the case when someone is born back in 1910, but we can assume he had a pretty decent upbringing because in 1933, he graduated from Syracuse with a degree in medicine. Herman completed a residency in Bellevue and then spent a year completing a postgraduate fellowship where he studied cardiology in London for six months and then in Amsterdam for another six months. Herman returned to the U.S. in 1939 and became an attending physician at White Plains Hospital. But when World War II broke out, Herman joined the U.S. Army Medical Corps and eventually became a lieutenant colonel stationed in Japan. Following his time serving in the military, Herman returned to the White Plains Hospital and moved to Scarsdale, New York, where he settled into his career and began to see success and his wealth grow. In 1957, Herman and another doctor, Dr. John Cannon, founded the Scarsdale Medical Group, which kept both of them comfortably rich, according to the New York Magazine. A short while later, Herman came up with a two-page handout for his patients who needed to lose weight. The sheet outlined what he called the Scarsdale diet, which promised up to 20 pounds of weight loss in under two weeks. This diet was only intended to be followed for 14 days, and then the patient was to switch to Herman's other program that was called the Keep Slim program. The Scarsdale diet produced a lot of success stories, but also a lot of controversy. In a nutshell, the Scarsdale diet allowed for just 1,000 calories a day, regardless of the patient's age, gender, or activity level. And of course, unless you're a kid, uh, eating under a thousand calories a day is not enough for anyone. This diet had specific macronutrient ratios where 43% of the daily calories came from protein, 34 and a half came from carbs, and 22 and a half came from fat. So essentially this is a high protein, low to moderate carb diet. The diet has no room for snacks and even healthy foods like sweet potatoes and avocados are off the table. It was a very restrictive diet plan that naturally did get results of some sort, but that didn't make it a healthy method of weight loss. In the
1: midst of his success with his practice, Herman moved to a house in Purchase, New York that was made of glass and brick and was secluded on 6.8 acres and included a pond. He had a team of servants and a house manager, as well as an estate manager, and this was a married couple, actually, named Suzanne and Henry Vanderwerken. So this couple lived at Herman's house with him. Suzanne was also a gourmet cook, and she hated to serve the same dish twice, so she actually kept a guest book with names and dates of every single guest that she ever cooked for at Herman's house. He would invite six to eight people over um, for a meal every now and then. These would just be people that he found interesting and wanted to converse with. And Suzanne would cook them all a meal and then log it in her little journal so she didn't forget what she made.
0: That's wild to me. Yeah. My family could never ask that of me.
1: I I have a hard time repeating
0: (laughs) the same meal in the same week. I'm like, you want hamburgers again? Okay. I guess we'll do it twice this week.
1: Yeah. So Herman loved to travel, and he would often go to places where he was able to hunt or fish. And one of his things was that he would purchase a Buddha figurine from every place that he visited, which is kind of neat. My thing – well, it didn't become my thing until recently, but when I go to a new place, I always get my youngest son a little mini snow globe, like, from the place. Oh, cool. Yeah, so now we have a bunch of little snow globes, but that reminded me of Herman and his Buddha statues. According to multiple sources, Herman was a proper and formal man who had very little patience for small talk. As a result of this, nobody really knew him all that well because he didn't like to gossip and so nobody really talked to him much. Nobody except the many women that he entertained. Herman was quite a ladies' man, having multiple girlfriends but never getting married. One such girlfriend of Herman's was a woman that he met in December of 1966 named Jean Harris. Although Herman was peculiar about the types of people and conversations that he had, he and Jean really enjoyed each other's company and found many things in common with each other. Soon, Jean was in love with Herman. He was a lifelong bachelor and didn't want to settle down, but Jean seemed to be one of Herman's favorites for a while. Jean Witt Struven was born in 1923 in Chicago. She and her multiple siblings grew up wealthy and attended an exclusive all-girl private school. Her family's money came from her father's position as the vice president of a construction company that built oil refineries and steel plants around the world. She graduated magna cum laude from Smith College in Massachusetts, where she was a member of the oldest academic honor society in the U.S., Phi Beta Kappa. Jean studied history and economics there, and she was known for being a very orderly woman who was very in control of her life and her goals. In May of 1946, Jean got married to James Harris. James was also from a prominent family in Gross Point, Michigan, and the couple settled into a house there. Jean soon took a job at the Country Day School, a very fancy private school where some members of the Ford family had even sent their children. Jean worked there as a teacher of history and economics, and she was highly respected as an educator. She was described as being a proper lady, having a reputation for integrity and honesty, and would sometimes lecture her students on honor and propriety.
0: So what does this have to do with Dr. Herman Tarnauer? Well, from this point on, several things happened in Jean's life that ultimately led to her meeting him. Despite being highly regarded in her career, Jean left her position at the college in 1950 to stay home with her newborn son, David. Two years later, another son was born, and she named him James after his father. by the time her youngest child was two, Jean was ready to get back to her career and she took a position teaching the first grade at the same day school she had worked at before. This wasn't really Jean's ideal position. She aspired to teach more than just the first grade, but she did enjoy the social prestige that came with working at the day school. Jean became more active and involved in social circles and became more independent. She even traveled to Russia by herself in the late 1950s. In 1964, Jean applied to be the assistant director of the school. She was not selected for this promotion, which was really upsetting for her. That same year, Jean filed for divorce and for custody of both sons. According to friends, James, her husband, really just wasn't as ambitious as her, and the two had grown apart. James also agreed to these terms of the divorce. Jean really didn't confide with anyone about the separation. According to the director of the school, Jean was, quote, ambitious and wanted to promote herself, end quote. So she really rarely discussed personal matters. In 1965, it was really a big year for Jean. In March of that year, the divorce was finalized, and after the spring semester finished, she graduated with a master's in education from Wayne State University in Detroit. Her professors wanted her to go on to get her doctorate, but Jean said that she couldn't get going to school. She has these two boys to raise on her own, really. In June, she decided to leave Michigan with the kids. She applied for different jobs and accepted one as the director of the middle school at the Springside School for Girls in Philadelphia. In September of that year, Jean and her sons moved to Philadelphia. Jean bought a house, which she and her sons lived in for the next six years. Jean was really not very well liked at this school. She was thought to be a tough disciplinarian. And one staff member even told New York Magazine that it was, quote, a reign of terror. We were glad when she left, "Quote This
1: is so crazy after... She previously was described as, you know, just being the best of the best and just very orderly, and like this is kind of, I feel like this is kind of odd, right?
0: Right. Yeah. It seems like a total change of personality, really. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. In December of 1966, Jean met Herman at a party. According to Jean, quote, they enjoyed each other's company, and she soon fell in love with him. They shared many common interests. End quote. And as we said before. Jean became one of Herman's most favored lovers. And there's so much more to get into this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
1: Researching for Moms and Murder helps feed the part of my brain that always wants to know more. Part of that curiosity comes from a love of learning, and what better way to learn something than from someone who is literally the best in their field. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds, anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn knife skills with Gordon Ramsay, improve your communication skills with Robin Roberts, or learn how to design stunning floral arrangements with Maurice Harris. With over a hundred classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is so much closer than you can imagine.
0: As someone who loves all things storytelling and comedy, I jumped at taking a masterclass by the king of comedic storytelling, David Sedaris. I'm in my second lesson, and it's really unlike anything I've ever taken before. I've read so many of David's stories and his books, so to hear how he's able to take this crazy life moment and spin it into a hilarious story later is like lifting the veil and taking a peek inside his mind. You can even take notes as you go along and you also are able to have downloadable lesson recaps to help keep your new knowledge fresh in your mind. What you'll really enjoy about this and other masterclasses is that the lessons are easy to pull up on your phone or your laptop, or you can even listen to them like you're listening to our podcast right now. The lessons are about 10 minutes in length, and there's really no nonsense. It's just straight to the point. And hearing from those who have mastered their field leaves you hanging on every word. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited
1: access to every masterclass. And as a Moms and Murder listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash murder now. That's masterclass.com slash momsandmurder for 15% off Masterclass.
0: Not all members of your family are human. Instead of having skin, some have fur. And before this gets any creepier, I should mention we are referring to your dog, man or woman's best friend. And if you want the best for your dog, and we know you do, do what we did and start your journey with Embark today.
1: Embark makes it so easy to find out everything there is to know about your canine friend. Embark sent me a packet with step-by-step instructions, so I was able to easily swab my girl Lila and send back the swab in their prepaid packaging envelope straight to their lab for analysis. I was sent emails throughout every step of the process, which made me
0: even more excited to finally get her results back. My little guy Remy is a Havanese, and I really had no idea what to expect when I got his results back. I knew some about what his breed could be susceptible to, but that's really just a giant what if. It's like saying humans generally don't want to be rickrolled, and my son's all, hey Alexa, play Never Gonna Give You Up on repeat every single day. So to learn specifically what Remy could potentially have based on his specific DNA is really invaluable. I had one flag on his results, which was that his ALT results could be low to normal. I of course really had no idea what this meant, but Embark broke it down in an easy to interpret way. And they even had a link for me to send it right to Remy's vet, making sure he was aware in case he ever has liver issues in the future.
1: Embark offers the most scientifically advanced dog DNA test. Their test analyzes more than 230,000 genetic markers. That's over twice as much genetic data than the competition. Right now, Embark has a limited-time offer on their Breed and Health Kit and Purebred Kit for our listeners. Go to EmbarkVet.com to get free shipping and save $50 with promo code MOMS. Visit EmbarkVet.com and use promo code MOMS to save $50 today.
0: And now back to the episode.
1: So before the break, we were talking about Herman Tarnauer and Gene Harris and how they have now met each other and enjoy each other's company. And Gene has started to become one of Herman's really, as Melissa said, more favored lovers. So in 1967, Herman actually started having Gene visit him at his home. According to Suzanne, who kept that guest book with all the dinner menus in it, Gene soon became a frequent visitor there and she would often stay the night. She never went to Herman's estate without his permission first, but their relationship grew serious enough that Jean started going on vacations with Herman. According to Jean, in May of 1967, Herman proposed to her and gave her a large engagement ring, but sometime later, he said that he didn't actually want to get married because he was, quote, married to his profession. Jean said she understood and she didn't think it was necessary to get married. She said the only thing that really mattered to her was just being with him. As early as 1970, Gene found out that Herman was seeing other women. At one point, they broke up, and he said he was going to marry somebody else, but Gene never really believed that he would actually get married to that other person. So they quickly got back together, and they started seeing each other almost every weekend. While Herman still slept with other women, it seemed like he exclusively took Gene to these public functions like fundraisers and dinner parties— In 1972, Jean took a job as the headmistress of the Thomas School in Connecticut. The school's enrollment numbers had been really declining, and there was a lot of turnover within the administration, so they wanted Jean to kind of come in and help whip the school back into shape. Unlike at her previous school, Jean was not well-liked at this school. According to coworkers, she had, quote, frequent emotional outbursts and difficulty handling the job. One of her coworkers said that Jean had a hardness in her eyes and she was just very cold. Some coworkers described her as being moody and said that she would even scream at students. And this is around two years after Jean started taking the stimulant desoxin, which we're gonna talk about a little bit more later and how it relates to the story. In 1975, Thomas School shut down and Jean took a job outside of education. She was offered a management position at a New York firm that supplied janitors for Madison Square Garden and other large buildings in the area. Her salary was $32,500 a year, which would be about $170,000 a year, so not really a bad position. Her sons were in their 20s at this point. This job didn't really last that long, though, because in 1977, Jean decided that she actually wanted to go back to working in education. So she took a job as headmistress of Madeira School located in McLean, Virginia, which is about 10 miles from Washington, D.C. According to the school's website, it's an independent boarding and day school that educates girls in grades 9 through 12. As of today, the school has 334 students and 51% of them are boarding students. The other 49% are just day students. The boarding students live in six different dormitory buildings on campus. The campus is on 376 acres overlooking the Potomac River and it includes a student center, classroom buildings, art and dance studios, dormitories, and faculty housing. There's just a lot going on there. It's a whole yeah. it's a whole thing. So because she was taking a $10,000 a year pay cut, which would be like losing $52,000 off of your paycheck today, Jean decided that she would live on the school's campus since they had facilities for faculty members. According to the Washington Post – Quote, in three years, many students and their parents say Harris proved herself one of the most capable headmistresses in the school's 74 years, end quote, which, again, is another turnaround from the last job she just had where everyone didn't like her. So it's kind of like, what is going on here? She spent many weekends five hours away at Herman's Place, though, in Purchase, New York. When she did stay on campus during the weekends, she would always leave her door open uh, to her house so that her students could come in and talk to her
0: anytime they wanted. That's so nice, but you would never catch me doing that in a million no, years. I don't care no. if I live on a compound <laughs> with just my own family. Absolutely not. I will right. keep under close. <laughs> I want my children to make an appointment, too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so little did Jean know that Herman was back to his old tricks whenever she wasn't around. In the early to mid-70s, he started dating his much younger employee, Lynn Triforos. Lynn was a divorced mother of two, but despite being 37, she saw something in the 64-year-old Herman. Lynn started visiting Herman at his place, and these visits became more frequent, according to Suzanne and her guestbook. Lynn sometimes stayed the night as well, and she also went on vacation with Herman. These are all things that really used to be exclusively for Jean, but now it appeared that Herman was starting to favor Lynn more and to lose affection towards Jean. The more Lynn came to visit for the night, the less Jean was invited over. In 1977, Jean stayed over 63 times. In 1978, 49 times. In 1979, only 26 times. I can't imagine somebody having this much. I was going to say, imagine having—I
1: know—imagine having your comings and goings like recorded in somebody's log somewhere. That is so crazy to me. Yeah.
0: Oh my <laughs> gosh. So Herman continued dating women other than Gene and Lynn, but only those two ever stayed the night at his house. Herman even enlisted the help of Suzanne when it came to keeping Lynn and Jean away from each other by making sure that neither woman's personal things were left where the other could see them. Even with these so-called steps in place to prevent a problem, the women did eventually find out about each other. Jean was very hurt when she learned that Herman had been spending a lot of time with Lynn, and the fact that Lynn was so much younger than her felt like really a double whammy to her. Jean was 20 years older than Lynn, and she felt like, herman maybe didn't want her anymore because she was just an older woman now but the affair that herman had with lynn was different than relationships that he'd been in before up until lynn came along herman only took gene to these functions as his date and now lynn has replaced her in that role for the most part although gene did still get to go to a few things which was kind of gross so gene felt that this affair with lynn was really cruelly public but she did her best to hide her sorrows one time, though, Lynn took out a small advertisement on the front of the New York Times to wish Herman a happy birthday. And when Jean saw it, she got upset and said to Herman, quote, why don't you use the Goodyear blimp next time? Uh, <laughs> which I don't blame her. It's a little advertisement on the front page of the New York Times to tell yeah. your lover happy birthday. That's like as in your face as you can get.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah.
0: I mean, I'm sure she's (laughs) – This is just messy. This is a
1: messy situation. Yeah, It's messy, yeah. In early
0: 1978,
1: the New York Times featured a story on Herman's Scarsdale diet, which talked about how the vice president of Bloomingdale's had actually seen a lot of success with the diet. A self-help author named Sam Sinclair Baker read the article and asked to meet with Herman in May of 1978. Herman told this man that he was actually thinking about writing a book himself about his diet, and so Sam offered to help him. For the next four months, Herman, Sam, and Jean worked on the book. So he's got Lynn now that he's, you know, dating and taking to functions, but he's going to let Gene help him work on this mm. book that he wants to write. So in late 1978, the book, which was titled The Complete Scarsdale Medical Diet Plus Dr. Tarnauer's Lifetime Keep Slim program, was published. It sold 750,000 hardback copies and 2 million paperbacks, which kind of blows my mind. That's a lot of copies yeah. of a diet book. I don't know. Maybe that's normal. I, I really don't know. I feel
0: like back in that time, like diet, the whole diet craze was so big that it makes it was. sense that like, mm-hmm. people were just grabbing onto anything.
1: Yeah. So from this point, Herman really became a celebrity. He started giving speeches and going on talk shows, and he gave Jean a mention in the acknowledgements for her help with the book. But he also recognized Lynn by naming one of the recipes after her. And I don't know how much of a compliment or a nod to her this is. Maybe this was her favorite dish, but it was spinach delight a la Lynn, which was a recipe for spinach and yogurt. What?
0: <laughs> but th- those were the only two ingredients, spinach and yogurt? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> is this what his housekeeper was making? No wonder she could make so many meals when people right. came over. She's like, just pick a vegetable and pick a dairy and throw yeah. them together.
1: Oh. And I do want to say, maybe this is just something that we don't eat here in the U.S. So if oh, other people eat spinach and yogurt and think it's good, tell us about it. I want to know how you prepare it that makes
0: it tasty. Because but you that's, know what, if you put spinach and yogurt and fruit in the blender and no, it a smoothie, <laughs> oh
1: well, that's yeah, that's totally different. good, right? Yeah, yeah. This those two by itself
0: is, is a shock.
1: <laughs> I need to know more about that. So because of the health dangers that eventually came to be, you know, after this diet came out, the book is actually no longer in print. And the Scarsdale diet is, of course, now referred to as a fad diet. Uh, So don't go looking for a copy of the book. I mean, you can if you want to. But don't. But don't. (laughs) So in March of 1979, Herman and Jean spent a week in the Caribbean. When they arrived back at Herman's, Jean found that her clothing, which she had been keeping in a closet on the first floor, had been ripped and slashed. Of course, besides the house staff, Lynn was the only other person in the house while Herman and Jean were away. Suzanne told Herman about the incident, but he didn't do anything about it. Around September of 1979, Herman told Suzanne that if Jean happened to call the house and he had a guest over, that Suzanne should just tell Jean that he wasn't there. So this really seems to be kind of the beginning of the end for Herman and Jean. Now he's putting steps in place to, like, actively hide from her whenever she's calling looking for him. It's like, yo, just tell her I'm not here. For the Christmas and New Year's holiday of 1979, Jean and Herman went to Palm Beach, Florida. In early February of 1980, Herman and Lynn also went on a vacation, but they went out of the country. In mid-February, Suzanne put together a small dinner party for Jean's son, David, who was getting married. And Suzanne said this was a joyous occasion. So it seems like Herman is kind of going back and forth. He goes and does something, you know, takes Jean on a vacation, and then he takes Lynn on a vacation. And then the next big thing is he's having Jean and her family over for this big dinner, and then he kind of goes back and hangs out with Lynn. So he definitely is clearly stringing both of them along. So after this party, Jean ended up staying the night with Herman, and she stayed for four days. Then she wrote a thank you letter to Herman, which also included some pretty unflattering references to Lynn. So in part, this letter read, quote, You will never be able to think of men and women as equals, but the truth is, darling, if one of the few women you do admire were to adopt the male equivalent of Lynn as lover and richly rewarded Boy Friday, you wouldn't ask them back to dinner a second time, end quote. I try to make sense of what this means. I think I get the gist of it. Yeah. I'm not really sure what – I don't understand the Boy Friday part. Yeah, once we get to the Boy
0: Friday part, that's where I'm like, (laughs)
1: hold on. (laughs) Or she's saying, like, boy howdy. Like, you heard that saying. Maybe that's a Southern way
0: of saying what she's trying uh, to say. (laughs) Don't Boy, I. howdy, the Southern Boy Friday. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So she's clearly upset that he's seeing Lynn, basically. That's what she's getting at. Sure. So after sending this scathing letter, Jean would never be invited back to Herman's place again.
0: So we're unsure exactly when these events happened, but at some point, Jean received a copy of Herman's will, quote, with Jean's name vigorously scratched out and Lynn's name in Herman's handwriting written in three places leaving Lynn a quarter of a million dollars and her children $25,000 apiece. It is weird that she had a copy of his will. Yeah. But who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Jean and her sons were left with nothing in this will that he had. So at some point, Herman had been talking at dinner parties about how, quote, Every man should have a wife half his age plus seven years, which I have heard and I heard it from Tom Haverford on Parks and Rec. That's what your dating age is allowed. Half your age Wait, plus seven. don't make me do the math. <laughs> don't make so me do the math. How old are you? 35. So you could, according to Tom Haverford and I guess this guy's rules, half your age, say, let's say 17, 18 plus seven years. So you could socially, it's acceptable for you to be dating a 25 year old. No. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Next. (laughs) I know, I know. So Jean's confused about these comments until she finds a book of epigrams on Herman's bed. There was a marked page about how an old man should have a young wife. So that's also salty for him to leave that out. So Jean later wrote that this made her feel like a piece of old discarded garbage. So just keep this all in mind as we continue in the story. On February 24th, Jean leaves for a long trip for fundraising for the school that she worked at. She went to Denver, San Diego, Seattle, San Francisco, and LA, all visiting schools and alumni and parents of prospective students. Upon returning from this long trip, Jean was met with a series of very upsetting events. First, she found out that her staff found, quote, a basket full of drug paraphernalia and the remains of smoked marijuana. And uh, this was found in the dorm rooms of four senior students who held positions of trust in the student government. So obviously this is a big no-no at their school. So Jean confronts the girls and they admitted their, you know, to owning this drug paraphernalia. And as was normal procedure for serious disciplinary problems, Jean then had to call a student council meeting. The meeting was held at her house on March 6th, which was the same day that she returned from this trip. According to an appeal document, quote, she acted as chairman and opinions ran the gamut from demands that the girls be immediately expelled to pleas that expulsion was far too severe. The final vote was for expulsion, but Harris's concurrence was necessary for that action. She directed that the girls be expelled, end quote. Also on March 6, Jean ran out of that prescription for desoxin, a stimulant that's used to treat ADHD. This medication was actually prescribed by her lover, Herman, who often prescribed medications for Jean to help with the exhaustion that she suffered due to her position as headmistress. She had been taking it at this point for about 10 years. And so this is a medication that has a high potential for abuse due to its highly addictive nature. It can also lead to suicidal thoughts or psychosis, especially in patients who have a history of depression. Those who have been on this medication for a long time are at a greater risk for having severe withdrawal within 24 hours of being off of it, and can last for up to two weeks. The physical signs of withdrawal from disoxin include jitters, fatigue, and dulled senses. Psychological symptoms include anxiety, irritability, and poor memory. In extreme cases of withdrawal, the patient can experience intense paranoia and agitation and be driven to hurt themselves or become physically aggressive towards others. All that to say, this is definitely not a medication that you would just want to quit cold turkey without the supervision of a professional.
1: Within the same couple of days, Jean found out that the board of directors was feeling unhappy with her job performance and the way that she ran the school had actually recently been harshly criticized in a report by an independent consultant. The report named Jean as the most controversial head of any school in the country and recommended that she be fired immediately, which, big yikes. So she wasn't exactly fired, but the board of directors ended up leaving her with the impression that she was on probation. So she realized that she likely would have to just move on. After this happened, Jean became distracted, agitated, and she really struggled to function, which led to a whole lot of people becoming worried about her. On March the 7th, Jean had the nurse at the school give her some shots for anemia, and while she was there, she kind of had a little bit of a breakdown while telling her staff that she would be staying on campus during the upcoming three-week-long break. It was during this conversation that she just became really upset. After she talked to them, she canceled an appointment that she had scheduled for later that afternoon, which was something that she never did. She always made her appointments. For the weekend of March 7th through 9th, Jean called Herman every single day to see if he was home. He was home, but Suzanne told Jean that he wasn't since that's what Herman asked her to say when he had guests over. And unbeknownst to Jean, Herman did have a guest over that weekend, and it was Lynn. During the weekend, students stopped by Jean's house like normal. They found that her front door was wide open and her house was a complete mess, which again was strange for her because she was very meticulous and always kept things clean but this time there were clothes all over the floor and the kitchen hadn't been cleaned in possibly a week and they noticed that she wasn't even in the house. So the girls that had tried to go visit her just left. Jean spent her time that weekend writing a new will and a long letter to Herman. The letter referenced a lot of things that Jean had put up with in regards to Herman's treatment of her during the course of their relationship. She really seemed to be using this opportunity to pour out all of these pent-up feelings that she had. She wrote, quote, All I ever asked for was to be with you, and when I left you, to know when we would see each other again, so there was something in life to look forward to. Now you're taking that away from me too, and I'm unable to cope. She referred to a luncheon that she attended with the doctor, which Herman had discussed Lynn and her wonderful family, and of course, right in front of Jean. And so she brought this up in the letter and said, quote, I can't imagine going out to dinner with you and telling my dinner partner how grand another lover is, end quote, which I will give her that. Like, that's pretty messed up. In another portion of the letter, Jean wrote that although it had been heartbreaking to see Herman less, she was still thankful to be able to see him at all, and that You know, he had really humiliated and destroyed her by having this very public affair with Lynn. She concluded the letter by begging Herman to take her instead of Lynn as his date to an important dinner in his honor that was coming up on April 19th, 1980. She said she felt that it was very important for her to be there for him and that she wanted to honor him.
0: On March 10th, 56 year old Jean completed her will and had it notarized. Then she mailed her letter to Herman. The letter later became known as the Scarsdale Letter. Later that morning, Jean said she called 69 year old Herman at his office and told him that she'd sent the letter, but she wanted him to throw it away without reading it because she regretted sending it. They talked about a few things, and Herman invited her to go to Westchester with him on the weekend of April 5th. According to a woman named Juanita, that's not how this conversation went at all. Juanita actually had an appointment with Herman at 10 a.m. that morning. Upon her arrival at Herman's office, she was shown directly into an examining room which had a wall telephone. Herman had just started examining her when the telephone rang. He answered it and then he said, I'll take this call in my office. So he places the receiver on the bracket near the telephone and leaves the room without actually hanging up the phone there. So Juanita remained seated at the examining table and soon she became aware of muffled voices coming through the receiver. She recognized one of the voices as her doctor and she heard him say loudly, GD Jean, I want you to stop bothering me. The voices then became muffled again until Juanita heard Herman say, quote, "You've lied and you've cheated." And later, she heard Herman say, "Well, you're going to inherit two hundred and forty thousand dollars." I wonder if Juanita picked up the phone and like put it up to her ear because yeah, she I would probably want to got so, so bad. yeah, she probably got so curious
1: about what was going on after she heard the first thing.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so then Herman returns to the examination room. Uh, he replaces the receiver on the hook and he continues Juanita's examination. Later that day, Jean says that she received a letter from a student who had once been injured in some sort of a hazing accident at the school. After this accident, Jean grew really, really close to this girl, and the two had a close relationship ever since. The letter was really critical of Jean's handling of the disciplinary affair, and that criticism really affected Jean deeply. Jean testified that after reading the letter, she thought, quote, If she thinks I failed her too, I had really blown the whole thing, end quote. This letter, combined with all that had just preceded it, really persuaded her that she could no longer function. It was then that Jean decided to take her own life. Later that afternoon, Jean called Herman's residence twice to see if he was home. When Suzanne said that he was not home, Jean angrily hung up the phone, but when she called back again later, she tried to find out, you know, exactly where Herman would be later that evening, but Suzanne said she didn't know anything about Herman's plans, which Suzanne, yes, you did, but I understand you're doing your job. In reality, Herman was at home, and he was with Len. His niece Debbie was also there, and Suzanne was making them a nice dinner.
1: Jean then wrote several letters and notes, including one to the chairman of the Madeira School Board of Directors, in which she said, quote, Next time, choose a head the board wants and supports. Don't let some poor fool work for two years before she knows she wasn't wanted in the first place, end quote. In a second note, she wrote, quote, I wish to be immediately cremated and thrown away. Jean said she began thinking about the walk she had taken with Herman on the grounds of his estate, and she was particularly thinking of the pond, and she remembered that Herman once said that when he died, he wanted to be cremated and have his ashes sprinkled in that pond. So she thought that she too would like to go by the side of the pond where the daffodils grow in the spring, and she decided that's where she wanted to end her own life. Before she left Madeira, Jean called Herman. He answered the phone and she told him that it had been a really bad few weeks and she wanted to go and talk to him just for a few minutes. Keep in mind, she has to drive five hours to get there. Oof. Yeah. So he told her that it's not really a good time. His niece Debbie was coming over for dinner that night, but Jean didn't really care. She said, you know, I know Debbie always leaves early, and she wouldn't be able to get there any earlier than 1030 anyways. As I just said, she has a long drive. So Herman said that it would be really more convenient if she just came the next day. But Jean insisted, saying, quote, please, just this once, let me say when, end quote. And he replied, suit yourself. So Jean then made the preparations to leave, and she got on her way. Jean first left her office and went home and she grabbed the 32 caliber gun that she had purchased from a sports shop in October of 1978. She purchased that gun telling the salesman that she wanted it for self-defense. She put a bullet in it and she took it out on the terrace. She pulled the trigger multiple times and on the third or fourth try, the gun fired. So now that she knew that the gun actually worked, she took multiple bullets and filled five of the chambers with a bullet. She was thinking to herself that, you know, she didn't want to risk not being able to complete her suicide. She wanted to make sure that all the rounds were full. What she didn't realize was that she actually left a sixth chamber empty. Hmm. Jean said that she left her house and got into her car. And on the passenger seat, she found a bouquet of flowers that had been left there by a teacher who had been just concerned about her state of mind. And this will come up again later. Before she could start on her five-hour drive to Herman's, she had to get gas. So she drove to the superintendent of buildings and grounds at the Madeira school and asked the superintendent if he would fill her car up with gas instead of her going to a gas station because she said she was late for a dinner party and she was afraid that there would be a long line at the gas station nearby. So the superintendent agreed and he filled her car with gas and he didn't notice anything unusual about Jean that day except that she did appear like she was in a big hurry. Jean later said that her drive to Herman's was peaceful because she was content with the knowledge that she had finally come to the end of the road.
0: Meanwhile, Herman got home from work. He read the newspaper, then he went upstairs to get ready for dinner. Debbie and Lynn arrived together at 7 p.m. and dinner was through by 8. After dinner, they all celebrated Suzanne's birthday with a cake that Lynn had brought. Then Lynn and Debbie left together around 8.45 because the weather was rainy and stormy that night. Around five minutes later, Herman goes upstairs to his room. According to Suzanne, if Herman was expecting a guest, he would leave the light on at the top of the outside steps. When Herman went to bed that evening, though, he did not turn the light on. So that really begs the question, did Herman forget Jean told him that she was coming by that evening, or did Jean lie about this conversation? After finishing up their duties, Suzanne's husband, who was the estate manager, uh, Henry, he went to sleep, and Suzanne stayed up for a little while painting and watching television. At around 10.30 that night, Jean showed up and stopped right in front of the steps. She was surprised because she didn't see that light on, but she thought maybe Herman just left the door ajar for her. So she got out of her car and she made her way up the steps with the flowers that she had been given that were found on the seat of her car. She said that she thought it would be really nice that night to give Herman the flowers. So when Jean got to the door, she realized it was locked, so she made her way through the garage to let herself in the way that she normally would. Jean walks up the first floor and notices that it was dark and quiet, so she called up to Herman from the bottom of the stairs, and then she walked up them while still calling out his name. When Jean got to the top of the stairs, she could hear Herman stirring, so she walked over to the edge of his bed and flipped on a light. Herman was not thrilled to be woken up that night. He told Jean that he wasn't interested in talking to her in the middle of the night, but after driving for five hours, Jean wasn't really ready to give up that easily. After all, he's a doctor. He's used to getting up all kinds of times, you know, in the middle of the night with patients. So for her, she was like, he can get up and talk to me. I drove all this way. So Jean stays and waits for a while while Herman lays there hugging a pillow and pretending to be asleep. After a few minutes, Jean gets up and goes into the guest bathroom and finds several items belonging to Lynn, including a piece of lingerie.
1: So naturally, seeing these things in the bathroom sent Jean into a tailspin. This plan was not working out as she had hoped. She really drove all this way because she just wanted Herman to pay attention to her for a few more minutes before she carried out her planned suicide, but he just wasn't having it. So Jean, in her anger and frustration, picked up a box of curlers from the bathroom and threw them, not in any particular direction. She just picked them up and threw them, but they ended up breaking a window So Herman finally gets out of bed and he comes into the bathroom very angry and in all this commotion his arm swung out and he hit Jean in the face. So this caused Jean to become even more angry and she started looking for something else that she could throw and she ended up smashing a cosmetic bureau of her own that had her own things in it and all the contents that were inside of this kind of flew everywhere and scattered all around the floor. Then she says Herman hit her again which made her retreat and she went back to sit on the edge of his bed and allegedly told him that she wished he would hit her again but hard enough to actually kill her. Herman did not hit her again after this point. He just walked away from her and walked around towards his bed. There was two beds in the room. There were two twin beds which I think was common at that time.
0: I thought that was like Lucy and Desi I, didn't I don't think know that maybe I'm like wrong well maybe he was really he was
1: born in 1910 maybe he was very old-fashioned I don't know there was two beds because sure. um in in the research she would describe one bed as his bed and one as he was close to my bed so I was like okay Hmm. I guess that's just how it was. They didn't sleep in the same bed. So he walked towards his bed. And at that moment, Jean grabbed her purse because she was going to leave. But then she picked up her purse and felt the weight of the gun and remembered that she actually had it with her. So she took that out and put it to her head and threatened to take her own life right there. So as Jean is raising the gun to her head, she's fully prepared to pull the trigger. But then Herman lunged toward her and pushed her hand away, but... The gun went off and actually shot Herman in the hand. Herman went into the bathroom to assess his injury, and Jean stayed in the room looking for the gun, she says, so that she could use it on herself before Herman came out of the bathroom. Jean found the gun under one of the beds in the room, and she bent down to pick it up. But Herman came back and tackled her, and he was able to get the gun from her. Herman then buzzed the buzzer in his room that was meant for calling the staff if he needed something. And, of course, Suzanne is surprised to hear the buzzer going off this late at night. So she called up to Herman's room to see what was the matter, but all she heard on the other end was silence. Eventually, Suzanne could make out Jean's voice along with some yelling, banging, and eventually a gunshot. Suzanne ran back to her husband, Henry, and told him that she heard a shot and that she knew Jean was in the house, and she said they should go upstairs because something is definitely wrong. Henry said, we need to call the police. So they tried to call from the kitchen, but the phone didn't work. So they ran back to their room, which had a private line, and called the police. At this time, it was 10.57 p.m. Henry then ran out of the house and asked a neighbor for help. While doing this, he saw Jean driving away in her car. From the house, Suzanne found the front door open and also saw Jean drive away. Suzanne raced upstairs to Herman's bedroom and saw him kneeling between the two single beds in the room. The telephone receiver was near him on the floor, and his pajamas were bloody, and he had blood on his back. Suzanne ran downstairs to the telephone in her room to try to call for help. When she couldn't get through, she returned to the kitchen and saw Jean coming up the steps with a police officer behind her.
0: Crazy. At this point, you're probably wondering what the heck is going on. Well, according to Jean, while Suzanne's on the phone listening, Jean has managed to grab the gun back from Herman, who then grabbed her wrist the way you would if you were just playing like tug of war. Jean said there was a moment where she felt what she believed was the muzzle of the gun on her stomach, but she still had the gun in her hands. So she pulled the trigger, allegedly planning to shoot herself. But when the gun goes off, Herman falls backwards and Jean realizes it hadn't been herself that she had just shot. So Jean gets up and moves to another area of the room and allegedly attempted to shoot herself in the head, but the gun didn't go off. So she points it away from herself and tries to fire it again, and it did go off. But after that, she said the gun just clicked whenever she tried to fire it. Thinking this gun is out of ammo, she tries to unload it and put in the other bullets that she brought along, but she wasn't able to dislodge the spent shell casings, and after beating the gun on the side of the tub to try to get them out, all she did was break the gun. Literally, broke the gun. She broke the cylinder off the revolver, so it was inoperable. Oh my gosh. Yeah. At this point, Herman is still alive and conscious. He tried to pick up the phone receiver in his room, but it wasn't working. Herman pulled himself up onto the bed, and Jean told him that she thought the phone was broken or had gone dead. Herman replied, you're probably right, and Jean helped him get on the bed. Jean alleged that Herman looked exhausted, but didn't look like he was in grave condition, so she ran downstairs and told Suzanne that she was going to call for help. Her plan was to go to a nearby community center that had a phone, but she ended up seeing a police car with flashing lights, so she stopped to tell him. Officer Brian McKenna had been responding to a radio call, which directed him to the residence to investigate a possible burglary in progress. He received a subsequent transmission warning him of shots fired. On his way to Herman's house, he saw Jean's car making a U-turn. He followed her back to the residence and into the driveway.
1: When Jean and the officer pulled up in front of the house, Jean ran to the patrol car and urged the officer to hurry. As they ran up the steps, they encountered Henry and Suzanne. McKenna asked who had done the shooting. Henry was screaming hysterically and, of course, pointing at Jean, saying, she's the one, you know, she's the one who did this. So all of them then go up to Herman's bedroom. Upon getting there, the officer saw that Herman was crouched on his knees and was leaning up against the headboard. There was a telephone on the floor right next to him, and he had blood all over his body. Checking Herman for vital signs and finding none, the officer raced back to his vehicle and radioed headquarters for an ambulance and then grabbed a resuscitator. Suzanne knelt on the floor beside Herman, taking his hand and speaking softly to him. Jean then laid across the bed and caressed his face, and she was saying, quote, Oh, hi, which is a nickname she had for him. Why didn't you kill me? End quote. This is bizarre to picture, yeah. like, this whole thing unfolding, and now this is what she's doing. Gene observed that Herman, quote, was trying to talk to us then, too, but he couldn't speak. And not three minutes before, he spoke perfectly clearly, end quote. So Officer McKenna came back to the room, and Herman was placed on his back, and McKenna began administering first aid to him. Herman actually resumed breathing. While they were waiting for an ambulance, other officers were arriving on the scene, and they directed the women to go to the foyer. One of the first officers to respond to the Tarnauer home was Detective Arthur Siciliano. When he entered the house, he encountered the two women standing in the foyer, and he identified himself as a detective and asked them what happened. Jean said simply that the doctor had been shot, and the detective asked where he was, and Jean said that he was upstairs. And when he asked who did it, Jean replied that she did. The detective then placed her under arrest and advised her of her constitutional rights. Jean responded that she would waive her rights and tell the detective what happened. So he asked Jean where the gun was, and she told him that it was in her car, and he went out to her vehicle and did recover the revolver from the front seat. The detective noticed a bloodstain on Jean's blouse and a bruise on her lip, on her eye, and her arm. So he asked her if she needed any medical assistance, and she said that she did not. The detective then asked Jean for a full account of the events of the evening. She told him that she had driven up from Virginia with the hope of being killed by Herman, she then hesitated a second and said, quote, he wanted to live, I wanted to die. She hesitated again and said, I've been through so much hell with him. I loved him very much. He slept with every woman he could and I had it, end quote. Jean then handed the detective a piece of paper containing a list of names and she said that she recently prepared this list and that the people named were to be notified in the event that her wishes were carried out. She also stated that she had no intention of returning to Virginia alive and we are going to get into the rest of the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Starting a new goal for yourself can feel a little scary, but if you've been toying with the goal of learning a new language, no need to fear. Let us help you out by introducing you to Babbel. Babbel is an amazing language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions and it's easy to see why. Babbel teaches you in these easy to digest bite-sized language lessons that are designed for real world use. So you can actually become fluent in a language and not just those fun phrases like where's the nearest bathroom.
0: My sister is fluent in Spanish and it's something I've always been really jealous of. After high school, she actually moved out of the country and really immersed herself in the language. While I'm not planning to do that anytime soon, I would love to learn Spanish so that I can better communicate with our in-laws whenever they come to visit. And Babbel has been a really fun way for me to do that. What I love about Babbel is not only could I pick from one of 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German, but in addition to the lessons I can take, I can also access things like games, videos, stories, live classes, and even get this, podcasts. With these 15-minute lessons, I'm able to learn Spanish in a way that I actually enjoy doing, and I always really look forward to these new lessons. No matter your reason for learning a new language, try out Babbel, and we know trying things can be kind of scary, but Babbel comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee, so you can start with confidence. Right now, save up to
1: 65% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com moms. That's babbel.com moms for up to 65% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life.
0: If you're looking for an easy and delicious way to up your fruit and veggie game, look no further than Daily Harvest. I always set goals for myself to eat more fruits and vegetables, but if it's not easy, I'm just not going to do it. I heard about Daily Harvest last year, and I really wanted to give it a try. So when the opportunity came up, I jumped at it. I knew Daily Harvest would be an easy way to get more fruits and vegetables in a day, but I didn't know that it would be so delicious. Take, for example, their Harvest Bowls. I'm
1: obsessed with the sweet potato and wild rice hash because it's not only filling, but it's mouthwatering good. I'm always trying to add more sweet potatoes into my diet and this is a delicious and easy way to do it. Plus, you can feel good with your purchase of Daily Harvest since they use recyclable and compostable packing and invest in organic farming practices, as well as reducing food waste, making you feel even better about purchasing from them.
0: Daily Harvest has everything from harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, and it's all built on organic fruits and vegetables. But the magic of Daily Harvest is that it's delivered right to your front door. All you need to do is throw it in the freezer until you're ready to eat it. There are no bad options with Daily Harvest, but their smoothies are my jam. I throw the ingredients into the blender, blend it up, and I am on my way to flavor town. like with one of my favorites, a delicious chocolate and blueberry smoothie that's packed with good-for-me things like almonds, spinach, and bananas, but it tastes like dessert. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good
1: about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. Go to dailyharvest.com moms to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com moms for up to 40 40- Dollars off your first box. dailyharvestcom moms.
0: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing Dash Pass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With Dash Pass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited zero dollar delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between.
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply.
0: And now back to the episode. So before the break, Herman has been shot, and police and investigators are really just trying to figure out what on earth has gone on this, you know, in this house that night. So describing the events in the bedroom, Jean said that she and Herman had had a struggle and that this gun had gone off several times. She said that she had asked Herman to kill her, but that the doctor had said, quote, get out of here, you're crazy, end quote. They started to struggle again, and the gun goes off several times. Jean admits that the gun was hers and said, quote, I remember holding the gun and shooting him in the hand, end quote. She said she had no idea really who was in control of the weapon. Tears came to her eyes, and she asked if she could see Herman. The detective replied that he really didn't think that would be a very good idea. As Jean and the detective spoke, Officers were bringing Herman down the stairs on a stretcher. When Jean saw Herman, she fell into the detective's arms and appeared to faint. The detective called for a doctor, but Jean immediately stood up as if nothing happened, and she announced that she did not need a doctor. After Herman had been removed from the home, Jean turned to Henry and in a loud voice asked him, you know, who had been there that night for dinner? Henry directed his response to the officers. He then asked them to remove Jean from the premises as quickly as possible. A few minutes later, Jean spoke with the lieutenant who had arrived at the scene, and she told him that it was ironic that Herman was dying and that she was alive since it was he who wanted to live and she who wanted to die. This officer ended up advising her of her constitutional rights, but Jean protested that she had already been given her rights three times. He then asked her if there was anyone she wanted to call, and she asked to call a lawyer friend in New York City. She obtained the number and she was permitted to enter the house again to try to call this attorney. She actually had to be helped into the house because she, quote, walked so unsteadily that it looked like she couldn't make it under her own power, end quote. An officer later testified that he heard Jean say into the telephone, quote, oh my God, I think I've killed high, end quote. When Jean completed her conversation with the attorney, the officer spoke with the attorney. After the telephone call, Jean was escorted out of the house. She passed an open door, which led to a bathroom. She stopped to look in the direction of a mirror. Touching her face in the area of her mouth, she said as if she was speaking to herself, quote, he hit me. He hit me a lot.
1: Meanwhile, Herman was being rushed by police ambulance to St. Agnes Hospital. Dr. Roth, a police surgeon, rode with him. But sometime during the trip, Dr. Roth lost Herman's vital signs. His attempts to administer emergency aid were not successful. At the hospital, attendants rushed Herman to surgery, but the physicians were unable to revive him, and he was pronounced dead. Jean was driven to the police station, where she was charged with assault. Two attorneys soon arrived and started speaking with Jean, but their meeting was interrupted when an officer came in to inform them that Herman had actually died and that the charges against Jean were now going to be upgraded to murder and that Jean would be going to jail. Jean had a very difficult time in jail. She cried a lot, and she felt suicidal, especially at the thought of this Scarsdale letter uh, being made public. She was put on antidepressants and other medication. Later, Herman's will was read, and it was found that he had left Jean $220,000, which of course she is not going to be able to get if she's found guilty of murder. He also left Lynn $200,000, plus $20,000 for each of her two children. The police officers began examining the scene. The room was in disarray with items of Lynn's clothing, curlers, and jewelry strewn all about. They discovered bloodstains on the bed and two trails of blood apparently leading from Herman's bed to the bathroom and back. They also discovered a bullet hole in the glass door leading to the deck outside of the bedroom and later recovered a bullet fragment from a post on the deck. A bullet was also discovered lodged in a headboard and the bathtub in the guest bathroom was chipped. The next day, Dr. Roth performed an autopsy. He found four separate bullet wounds, one in the right upper chest, the right shoulder, the right arm through the tricep, and the thumb and index finger on the right hand.
0: On November 21st, 1980, Jean's trial began in Westchester County. It wasn't moved to a different area. Her trial, though, was a huge media sensation. Many people felt sympathy for her, believing that Herman was this womanizer. And others felt like Jean killed Herman out of pure jealousy over his younger lover. Because Jean openly admitted to shooting Herman, the trial was really to decide if she shot him on purpose or whether or not it was an accident. The chief medical examiner, Dr. Lewis Roth, testified that Herman's wounds weren't consistent with the struggle for the gun. Dr. Roth also said that the bullet that had entered Herman's hand had gone on to cause his chest wound. Basically, what they're saying is that Herman had his hand over his chest whenever Jean fired and the bullet went through his hand into the heart. This showed that Jean's story about shooting herman in the hand only was untrue the defense called herbert leon McDonnell, the director of the laboratory of forensic science McDonnell, a noted consultant in criminal cases has special expertise in blood spatter analysis mcdonald took measurements and examined the scene in an attempt to reconstruct the position from which each bullet was fired based upon his analysis of the blood spatters he concluded that after having been wounded Herman probably walked from the bed to the bathroom and back to the bed. He also was of the opinion that four or five of the spent cartridges found in the cylinder of the weapon had been double struck by the hammer. This fact, coupled with the position of the cylinder when the gun was recovered, led MacDonald to offer the following sequence. First, the weapon was fired four times, the hammer then fell on the empty chamber. The gun was then fired one more time, and the trigger was pulled either four or five additional times, with the hammer falling on spent cartridges and possibly again on the empty chamber. Former Westchester County Deputy Medical Examiner Dr. Francis Ryan, who later became the chief medical examiner in Maine, testified that the chest wound and the hand wound were two separate injuries, which showed that Jean's story could actually be true. According to an appeal document, the prosecution's theory was that, quote, Jean, who had been Herman's paramour and companion for nearly 14 years, went to his home on the evening of the shooting and, acting out of a jealous rage over the doctor's relationship with a younger woman, deliberately shot and killed him end quote. The prosecution used this Scarsdale letter as evidence of Jean's state of mind. Jean testified that things she wrote in the Scarsdale letter quote, "accurately reflected her troubled state of mind when she wrote it, and she described it as shrieking with her pain end quote.
1: Suzanne was one of the prosecution's main witnesses. Her testimony helped set the scene for everything from Herman's relationship with Jean through what happened on that fateful night. Jean's defense was that the shooting was an accident. She said that she wasn't upset that Herman was seeing other women. She had come to, allegedly, come to accept his desire and need for other women, and she said she no longer had felt threatened by it at that point. Instead, Jean said that she had been, quote, consumed with feelings of her own inadequacy and distraught over setbacks in her professional life, end quote. She was exhausted and depressed as a result of working as a headmistress, and she was agitated due to withdrawal from desoxin. She had planned on taking her own life, not Herman's. The defense called two psychiatrists to testify as to the effect of the sudden discontinuance of this medication and both agreed that a woman like Jean Harris, who had suddenly discontinued the use of the drug at the level that she was taking it at, they would be expected to experience some symptoms such as fatigue, anxiety, agitation, a sense of melancholy, and a tendency to feel pessimistic and easily overwhelmed by day-to-day stress. To show her state of mind at the time, the defense had many witnesses testify about it and how, you know, Jean acted and what her behavior was like leading up to the murder. They talked about how she was distracted, agitated, not really able to function in her normal capacity. According to a court document, the witnesses all seemed to show great affection and respect for Jean, and there were many that were actually just called specifically to attest to her high reputation for integrity and honesty and peaceableness. So to show that she really did plan on taking her own life and not Herman's, the defense brought up how Jean had changed her will and wrote those letters and notes to people. Jean testified in her own defense, t- telling the jury, quote, I was very much in love with him. I have been publicly humiliated. I have lived a quiet, private life, and I wanted to die a quiet, private death. It wasn't meant to be a grandstand play, though it certainly looks that way now, end quote. On February 24, 1981, after eight days of deliberations, during which the jurors reenacted the shooting, the jury of four men and eight women convicted Jean of murder in the second degree, as well as criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree and criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree. A month later, Jean was sentenced to 15 years to life. She told the court, quote, I did not murder Dr. Tarnauer. I loved him very much. No one in the world feels his loss more than I do. I am not guilty, end quote. Jean's convictions and sentence were affirmed by the Supreme Court of New York, and all of her appeals were denied. Throughout her time in prison, Jean applied for clemency at least two times.
0: While serving time at the Bedford Hills Prison, Jean really made a difference. She set up a nursery inside the prison where infants born in prison could spend a year with their mom. She taught classes for expectant mothers on parenting skills, and the nursery is still open to this day. Jean also organized the prison library and tutored inmates studying for their GEDs. Jean wrote an article for New York Magazine about prison conditions, describing a humiliating search of her body by a guard, according to the Washington Post. In 1986, Jean published a book called Stranger in Two Worlds, which detailed her relationship with Herman, as well as her life in prison. On December 29, 1992, she suffered a second heart attack and needed open-heart surgery. As she was wheeled into surgery, she actually learned that Governor Mario Cuomo commuted her sentence. Cuomo released a statement saying that he granted Jean's clemency because of her work at Bedford Hills. On January 22, 1993, 69-year-old Jean was released from prison. After recovering from her surgery, Jean retired to a cabinet on the Connecticut River in rural New Hampshire and became an advocate for prison reform. She also created an organization called the Bedford Hills Children's Foundation to aid in the education of prisoners' children. She was able to raise millions of dollars. Jean never wanted any fame. She spent time gardening outside her cabin, writing, and walking with her golden retriever. On December 23rd, 2012, Jean passed away at an assisted living facility in New Haven, Connecticut. She was 89 years old. Wow, what a story. Honestly, it really is. And I honestly don't even know how I feel about it. I I think what she was able to do after was amazing. I don't think she went there. I mean, they weren't really saying that she went there with the intention of killing him, but- I can definitely get behind the theory that she never intended to hurt him and she did intend inter- to hurt herself and things just absolutely went crazy that night.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't really think she had any business going over there that night. No. But yeah, definitely a crazy story. I'm not really sure. I don't really know what my opinion is about this one.
0: <laughs> I don't either, but I think what she was able to do after whatever actually happened is truly amazing. It is. It is. Yeah, and I, I do
1: love that part of the story. Yeah,
0: and I like – I think that clemency made a lot of sense in, uh, for that. But yeah, that was, wow. I learned a lot in that story for sure.
1: Yeah, me too. All right, Melissa, so we're gonna move on to the last thing before we go. We have a little treat for those of you who enjoy television. Which is everyone but you. (laughs) I know. It pretty much is everyone but me. So if you don't watch a lot of TV, then maybe you don't know about the show Love is Blind on Netflix. They just released their second season earlier this month, and I did watch Love is Blind season one with Melissa, and we talked about it at the end of that season, and now I watched the second season. So I'm excited because, as everybody knows, I don't normally watch TV, and Melissa – like sometimes has a hard time convincing me to, to watch
0: TV shows. So I'm very excited to which talk about this one. <laughs> already feels wild. So uh, just if you haven't watched it, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. I'm not going to hold anything back because it's just going to be spoilers. right? Mandy, what did you think of this season compared to last season? Did you think more hot messes, more love? What did you think?
1: I thought more love. I thought there was less hot mess going on this season, which I kind of appreciated
0: a little bit. Yeah. Mm. What did you think? You thought it was
1: worse than last season?
0: I loved it equally. It's one of those shows I can get like, I am going to binge it. It's just, it's so bingeable, first of all. And it's like such a like, like you're constantly putting yourself in that position. Like, could I ever be in a state of mind where I could meet somebody behind a wall and just like fall in love with them and convince myself to marry them knowing what like marriage is and family is and all that, like at this age. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't think I could. I'd be like, you're going to fight me right now. We are going to fight before we ever um, get engaged because they're just like in love with love. It 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 makes me crazy. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, that method of finding a, a lifelong partner, I don't think would be for me. Lifelong. But I can see like if you really are just open to the idea of you know, just setting aside appearances and just getting to know somebody a little bit through a wall. My only complaint about this process that they do with this show is that it's not long enough because I don't care. you. Everybody sounds great the first week you talk to them. Like, exactly. I could be convinced to meet anyone after one week of conversation, but... I don't know. That's my only complaint. But anyway, that's the whole point of the show, right, is to be a drama fest. And that's what – that's totally what we got. That's what I love. And I love it so much. So, Melissa, what is the first thing you want to talk about?
0: (laughs) Okay, Mandy, is there – do you have like a favorite couple, a least favorite? I do. So so at this point, we know that the couples that actually got married – again, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler – are – who is it? Ayana and Jarrett and Danielle and Nick. Those two got married. Yes. What did you think of Danielle and Nick? Because I – they are.
1: I don't think they're gonna make it. I feel bad saying that, but it's just not. I don't think it's gonna happen
0: because I don't know. Can you imagine being friends with those two? How many times a day would that girl text you about all the problems she was having with her husband, and you'd be like, "Okay, but I like
1: <laughs> yeah." Stop. And like I and, and I I understand like some people really are kind of like that, but but he's not That's the exhausting. one for her to deal with it. Like he doesn't. He seems like he's gonna get too impatient and. Irritated with her, where somebody else might be able to have a little more patience with her in the way that she is. But I totally think she just is going to be needing tons of reassurance throughout the entire relationship, and I just don't know if he is ready to step up and give her all that.
0: Yeah, and I liked her. I really like, especially at the beginning. I really, really liked her, and I think they're both nice people. But you can see like the the clash there, where you're like, oh, if you're always like. Overanalyzing every situation that happens, and he's like, I can't do this anymore. This is gonna be a huge issue. Mandy, what did you think, um, Salvador and Mallory? I
1: was kind of surprised that they did not get married. And I was really surprised that it was him who said no, because I really was thinking that he was ready to go all the way with her and that he was really into her. But I do have to say, Mallory was not my favorite in the beginning, especially because I felt like she was doing him really dirty, going behind and talking to Jarrett, who she had a really deep connection with in the pods, and kind of that, that was like a that episode was like, so eat your popcorn and candy while you watch that one because mm-hmm. she was literally saying, like, they were kind of flirting really yeah, bad, saying, Yeah, like, maybe we should have chose each other, that kind of thing. Like, I don't know, it was really sketchy. So, I maybe Mallory wasn't a good one for Sal because I thought he was genuinely a sweet person, but. I don't know. I don't know. I I was kind of sad because I also in some way felt like they actually did seem like they could work together.
0: Yeah, I agree. But I think like – I think they both need different things. But I think he – may I now have a secret thought that he went on there to get a ukulele music contract because why was he playing his ukulele
1: every time we saw him he had a freaking
0: ukulele I was like maybe if you played it at your wedding maybe she said no we can't play it at the wedding and he was like you know what no I will not marry you and that's what happened (laughs) I could see that happening because that would make more sense right
1: yeah well my husband watched it with me all the episodes which is kind of funny and and nice and sweet but he was saying about Sal he was like Either this guy is always high or he's always about to cry. Like he always has that look in his eyes like they're just – like, he's about to burst into tears. Yeah. And I think you and me talked about how that, like, that would kind of be exhausting because he does seem the type who's exhausting. just very sensitive and sweet and would need to have a lot of, like, deep conversations all
0: the time. And if you're also into that, then cool. He's way too nice to, for me. Like, for I me don't too. need me somebody too. being that yeah. sweet. Like, I'd be like, <laughs> what is wrong? What are you doing? Like, what are you doing behind my back? That's what I would yeah. yeah, I would address yeah, yeah. the situation. Okay, let's go to – I'm thinking of these all off the top of my head. Ayana and Jarrett. Did you love Ayanna?
1: I love them as a couple. They were definitely my favorite couple of the season. And I really am rooting for them. I hope they go far in life. I think they will, actually. Me too. She is like the sweetest person I've ever even seen on TV or otherwise. Like, she just is so sweet and such a nice person. You can just tell. And, um, but I don't think he's a bad guy either. I think he's no. really good for her. And I think um, like one of their big things was that he just kind of is a guy's guy and likes to hang out with his friends and go out a lot. But I think he will rein that in for her when they get married. And I love them. I think they're so adorable. And I can't wait for them to have a baby.
0: <laughs> I know. Oh, gosh. That baby will be so cute. Um, but also uh, like I think that could work, though, with him being a guy's guy and like wants to go out and she's like a homebody like that kind of gives you your space too. like, OK, yeah, you go hang with your friends and then. As long as it's not excessive, but yes. Sure. But like that is a good situation for me. Then that's a quiet house. (laughs) Me too, right? Please.
1: (laughs) Please have more friends. Leave.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Who else do we have left? Oh. Oh, Shane and Natalie. Shane and Natalie. Okay. And then we have one more after that. So Shane and Natalie. Did you – I saw the red
1: flags with Shane right away. Him and – What's her name? Would have been great together if you wanted to see a lot of drama.
0: Here – here's my secret <laughs> suspicion. Next week is a reunion. Reunion. I oh, think Shana yeah. and Shane are going to get together. Oh, they probably will.
1: How but much that's that- like really funny because I feel like that's going to be really hypocritical of her because he is – like her whole reason for not wanting to stay with the guy that she chose was because they didn't have the same religious beliefs, but – Shane didn't say anything on the show that would lead me to believe that he would be a good fit for Shayna if that was her reasoning.
0: No, his whole thing was, uh, what are you wearing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so it kind of
1: doesn't fit. I don't know. So, But whatever. More power to them if they try. I think that would be a definite train wreck because they both seem like they got hot personalities.
0: I know. Way to go, Natalie, though, because I thought she was going to go through with it. So I'm glad they had that crazy fight, which how terrible – Oh I mean, I'm not gosh. glad they did that. It's such a mean thing to say to someone. I know, but good
1: thing she found out that he could Thank be goodness. that way, like, you know, before That's they what I'm saying. You should fight it. before. Like you I should know. have to fight. But the way but he had a couple of things, even that were aired on the show, that like indicated to me that he could be nasty like that. Oh, like yeah. I could see it easily. I was like, This is the kind of guy who gets mad and punches a wall. Like you can yeah. just yeah, see yeah. it. You well can just remember
0: talk. the baseball game? yes Remember, oh my gosh oh my like you're God. mad because you didn't hit a baseball this is not gonna go well at all no yeah yeah okay, okay who's left my finale is um shake and deeps deeps is oh, the yeah. mvp right she's yes. totally the mvp of the yes. whole thing we don't yes. need a lauren and cameron this year when we have deeps i mean i love iana and iana and Jarrett, but deeps deeps is everything i'm obsessed yes with her.
1: I am too, and I totally supported her decision to be like, no, you know what, I deserve – Way better than that. Like I don't want to just be somebody's best friend who like they don't have any other attraction to me. Like I, you know, that's not what she wants. And what she was openly for. has
0: told several people. You remind me And even me of- her.
1: Like I mean, he told her. Like listen, I just it's not natural for me to have a, a you know this physical attraction to you. I'm like, well, ouch. Like how are we going to go get yeah. married then? Like that's really awful and terrible, you know. And like it was nice that he listed off all these other great things that he liked about her. And I think that's really you know sweet of him mm. to let her know all the good qualities that he thought she had. But um at the end of the day like you're not there to make a best friend you're there to find a spouse so i can yeah. I, I was proud of her for just saying nope i don't think um
0: that he's the one for me well and he basically was like you know i i do like all these things about you so you should you should just marry me you know what i mean like i can look past my attraction, so right. You should oh, but then whenever oh, he said up. he
1: thought she looked like her aunt, his aunt, I was like, okay, this is a little too much. Too and then I knew, far. like, I knew. I was like, it's not going to work out because there's if he really feels that way and like looks at her and sees a family member, like there's how is that going to work? Like there's well, just no if way. there
0: is, somebody needs to call the police because something right. else is going on in that situation. <laughs> yeah, I loved her though, and I loved her mom and her family, and just like she can do whatever the heck she wants to. She's totally she's good to go. And him saying at the end, he was not. He was like, if she would have said, se- if I would have said first, you know, I would have been saying no like or if i would have said yes she would have gone along with it shut up you've never seen somebody so hurt on television or embarrassed he's like i'm not even i'm not even embarrassed i'm totally fine and i got (laughs) tickets for or whatever nobu on saturday which i'm like what year is this right i know tickets on saturday (laughs) Hmm. or uh, reservations i don't even know how to work at nobu yeah great season cannot wait for the finale it's going to be i mean or or the reunion although it's going to be nick and Nick and Vanessa, for no reason, will be hosting I know, it. I Why? know, I know.
1: Yeah, I can't wait for that. It comes out on March 4th. So I'm like counting down to the days to see the reunion because that's always where you get to see like extra drama, I feel like. Messiness, yes. I love it. Can't wait. All right, Melissa. Well, we are going to get out of here. We'll be back next week. Same time, same
0: place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode.